first question for you would have to be, how did you get into your uh, area of science? Uh, how did you get into like remote sensing? How did you get into um, NASA? Just very broad. Sure. Uh, so I, I guess I'm unusual in that I knew I, I wanted to work at NASA since I was about four or so. Um, and I had visited a JPL open house growing up in Los Angeles and saw the Mars rover landing live. And I just was sort of instantly hooked um, at the time, I had been really keen on astronomy and uh, assumed I would, you know, be working <laughs> towards uh, an astronomy degree. And, and I had all these questions about the universe, the formation of, of uh, everything, and you know, where we're all going. So I had created a number of different telescopes, and then in high school, it culminated in a project uh, where I used an amateur telescope that I had built with some camera systems and software to detect um, a planet 150 light years away. This was roughly the size of Jupiter or so, four times the size of Jupiter, I believe. I have my numbers correct, (laughs) it's been a while. Um, And so that project kind of catapulted me onto a path of of astronomy. I went um, to Russia to do my undergraduate for four and a half years. That was also because I wanted to become an astronaut at NASA, but um, that, you know, I thought I'll do my physics degree there and, you know, learn Russian at the same time. So I came back from there to Stanford and did my graduate degree in, it was started in physics and then actually I moved over to aeronautics and astronautics where I developed um, new types of um, aircraft that fly using electric fields, high voltage electric fields, so kind of like the, sorry, let me know if I cut out because my VPN is spotty. <laughs> no, I, I was having that issue earlier, it's fine. <laughs> uh so yeah, I was doing that, and then got into back sort of into astronomy, developing high-resolution um, imaging systems that could image actually these two. Am I cut out again? Let me. I'll disconnect my VPN. My back again. Yes, it's a little bit okay. uh, like. The image is a little bad. It's, but I can hear the the voice is what's most important. That's I got that. <clears throat> <laughs> um, I've I've turned off my VPN, which is intermittent. So I think that might have been the problem. Um, so where where did you last hear? <laughs> I was... Oh, I heard everything up until you said shutting off VPN. Okay. Okay. Uh, so the the images behind me actually are, are two pictures. One is of the Venus transit. The other is of a supermoon event um, from 2012. And that's how I, I had given a talk at NASA on the technology I created um, to process those images. And I made them from like a backyard telescope again, but they matched, you know, that of observatories. And that got me sort of instantly interrogated by the center director at the time <laughs> um, who asked a lot of questions and happened to have done a PhD in exactly the field I was in. So it was a, an intense grilling in front of you know 200 people. But at the end, he said, you know, I really would encourage you to apply for a job here um, and work in developing the system for CubeSats, for you know, deep space observations. So um, I actually got hired at NASA before finishing my degree and then I entered the Pathways program, um, and I was developing these technologies for, for deep space imaging, for um, looking at things in our own solar system as well as beyond. And then someone approached me from marine biology and said, you know, have you looked at 
looking through the ocean surface. Um, so one of the issues with imaging from the ground and looking at celestial objects like those is that the Earth's atmosphere causes a lot of distortions. And so the problem, I thought, you know, had been solved for the ocean surface because it's, in a way, a little bit simpler. It's not as um, a long of an optical path for light to get bent. But, you know, it turns out that when I started the research, which was 2010 or so, um, it had not been solved. And actually, as of today, it's, it's still not solved. Um, I made a contribution with my doctoral thesis in being able to look through ocean waves at high resolution, and that's led to a NASA instrument called FluidCam, uh, which I'm the PI of, and that has been mapping coral reefs around the world and being able to kind of peel back the distortions to see things at the diver scale. Um, but yeah, my whole world has kind of shift, shifted in the last, uh, I'd say, 10 years when I went from astronomy to, to ocean science and earth science and instrument development for that purpose. Um, so right now, you know, as of 2020, less than 5% of the ocean floor has been mapped, but we've mapped all of Mars and the moon. Am I still connected? Okay, sorry. <laughs> Keith's kind of yeah. getting up. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's just my, I, I formed my lab, the Laboratory for Advanced Sensing, in 2016 and finished my PhD then and then converted from the Pathways program to a full-time civil servant and hired a, a team. So now I, have, I lead a team of about um, five different people from different disciplines, from you know, um, optical engineering to mechanical engineering to computer science, machine learning. Um, and right now, our, our biggest efforts are really just in trying to close the gap between our observational capacity of what we have, of bodies that you know, we send satellites to, like the moon, that just happen to be very easy to observe because they don't have an ocean surface, and that of trying to fill in the gaps in knowledge we have about the system that supports us. Um, the majority ecosystem on Earth is in the ocean. We're sort of the exception on land. And that, once I had sort of come to that realization, I think I, I, I wholeheartedly went from astronomy into Earth science and ocean science, and just trying to, to get that number up from 5% to something uh, more like 100%. So. Awesome. You actually touched on a lot of the uh, questions I had for you, which is great. And, I'm, and so you might have to be repeating yourself a little bit. Um, did you experience any outreach programs or engagement with scientists when you were doing this early in your life? I know you mentioned JPL and, and seeing that. How, how influential was that at a young age to, to, to be introduced to, the, to this kind of stuff, to this technology, to NASA? I think it's absolutely crucial. I mean, growing up in an inner city, it doesn't expose you. You know, you, you don't see many astronomers typically coming out of urban environments. And I think one of the challenges is, you know, the night sky is so limited there. The exposure to resources and science um, really sometimes frustratingly flows down socioeconomic lines. So if you happen to be in an affluent area, and your primary concern every day is not for your safety or being burglarized or having a place to eat, stay or something to eat, um, then you might be exposed to the more things. But if you if you don't have those opportunities, you know, it's really up to other folks, other agencies like NASA um, or museums to do outreach and to reach kids that may not be, you know, have that kind of exposure. So I was really lucky to have folks in my life um, and, you know, proximity to a NASA center while I was still about an hour and a half drive. But it was, it was close enough that when their open houses happened and, you know, I went there as a kid, 
and I met some of the scientists that you know are still there and, and working on these projects, the Cassini um, imaging scientists, for example. And you know, you get to interact with them, you get some posters. It was that was just for me a, a crucial formative experience because it sparked an interest that then I could take to school and try to research on my own further. But without that kind of um, outreach effort, it was it was very difficult. Actually, just a few years ago, I had kind of the the opposite view of that um, experience when I was we did the open house at Ames. I'm not sure if you, I guess you're you're new to Ames, right? So. Yes, I'm, I'm new, but I'm remote working from Texas, unfortunately. Oh, I was in HQ in the spring, though, so I, I understand that, yeah. I understand, like, I've been to one facility and, and interned there. This is, like, remotely through Ames. Uh-huh. Cool. Uh, well, yeah, so Ames decided, we, you know, we should do an open house as well. And so I was one of the first people who said, I will volunteer, you know, to help with, with managing this. Little did we know, you know, we had, it was so popular, there was about a quarter of a million people in the, in the gates. Now, you can imagine the size of Ames and, like, trying to fit a quarter million people between the different buildings. And uh, our building, the new Earth Science building, that, uh, as you enter Ames, this main gate, there's, like, a modern, um, you know, extension wing. That's where my office is. And so when everyone came into Ames, that was the first port of call, which meant that everyone formed a giant outside that building that went <laughs> wrapped around the block and it, you know it was very I mean, so we kept telling them you know go on there's more there's more um, but during that interaction where I think I stood on my feet talking about earth science for like 12 hours straight from the morning till the evening um, there was a kid that walked up to me and he was that same age I was when I went to JPL and his name was Vade now Vade is a very in- uncommon name in the United States I've met Nobody with my name except for this kid. And he just, I could tell you that same look in his eyes, he was as captivated by what I was sharing, which was my research into mapping ocean systems. And he walked up to me and said, you know, I want to be a scientist like you one day. And that to me just really uh, hit home because it felt like, you know, it was that kind of interaction I had as a kid um, that got me to eventually try to work at NASA. But I think in his case, it was also being able to see somebody that not only looks like him, but also, you know, happened to share the same name, that's pretty unusual to feel like, you know, that's something that he could achieve. And so, uh, yeah, I think that that would, that would be one big outreach event, um, that the open houses that the NASA centers used to have. And there's such unique facilities for doing that because they're so distributed across the U.S. You know, it's really, I think, a great opportunity to expose people to STEM and what science and math can, can really <laughs> bring you. That's awesome. That's actually really cool that he even had your name too. And it was like, you know, seeing like the next generation of scientists like coming up and being able to influence their lives in a positive way and be able to like, you know, introduce them like you were introduced. What, um, what got you interested in, uh, initially telescopes and astronomy and then what later changed or transitioned or you found out about earth sciences that made you want to follow that path? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just growing up with constantly asking my parents, you know, why is it, why is this the way it is? <laughs> you know, why is the sky blue? Why is the sun this way? And honestly, if you keep down that path of just constantly asking them questions, um, they run out. Everyone runs out at a certain point of, of how much knowledge they have. And so for me, it was it was a, it was that pursuit of just I want to know what makes the universe tick how does you know what where did we come from where does it start is there life elsewhere in the universe these were things that were 
just constantly in my head. And so astronomy was the easiest pathway I saw forward to try to answer those questions. It's like, are we alone? Okay, maybe we can develop ways in which we could find other planets. And that's what my high school project ended up becoming, is just trying to develop a better way of detecting planets, which was the transit method that now Kepler uses um, and everyone else uses. I did not invent it by any means, but I was one of the people who got it to be used on a very small system that was you know, sort of democratizing access to that technology. So that to me was like step one, you know, maybe we can detect planets and then maybe down the line we could try to get spectral signatures from their atmospheres. But the more I learned about astronomy, you know, <laughs> the proverbial anecdote is the less you know, and it's, it's so true. I mean, despite doing, you know, upper graduate level classes, I think at one point I realized I spent 25 years in school or something. Um, you just, you don't know. I mean, that's, and that's the whole excitement about science is that you don't know the answer, but you have the tools to try to figure it out. Um, and you have a system in place where you can kind of chip away at a problem and, and figure it out. So I was, you know, totally hell-bent on astronomy and was looking at trying to develop mostly imaging systems because that's where my, my inventiveness kind of came in and I was able to build hardware and uh, fabricate things and, and I very much hands-on, and most of astronomy is not hands-on unless you're building instruments. So for me, that was kind of where I, I naturally fell. And then I just, you know, I'd always been interested in the ocean and the Earth as a system. I went diving a ton as a kid um, and growing up, and it, it just never really clicked to me that what is, you know, the end goal? If you're looking for life elsewhere in the universe, um, you probably want to understand the one example you have at home first. And... It, it shocked me, you know, after exposing myself to a little bit of marine biology and courses, um, that we just, we know so little about what is essentially an alien life form. If you pulled up some of these deep sea organisms, and let me just make sure I'm still connected to you. Okay. Still there? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you pull up some of these creatures, I mean, they look like they're from an alien planet. You could convincingly present a spider crab to, I think, the majority of people on Earth, and they would assume it was something from Enceladus's oceans. And that intrigued me so much, is to, to think that there's this tantalizing, uh, unexplored new horizon in our own planet, and someone's got to develop the techniques to get there. So that was one thing that kind of got me moving from astronomy into ocean science, is just thinking, you know, someone's got to do it. Um, why not, you know, me and my, my lab? Um, the second thing was meeting Sylvia Earle. She is one of, uh, she's, see, she's, I think the only woman to dive as deep as <laughs> anyone else. Um, she's lived underwater for a significant fraction of her life. She used to be the chief scientist of NOAA. She's sort of a, a legend in the, in the ocean science community. But 10 minutes you know, with her had me convinced that I really needed to just focus my efforts on the ocean. I mean, she also just is a very charming um, older woman. you know. So she held my hand and just said, babe, you, know, you can go out and study the universe, but this is your home, you know, this is, this is the one place we have that we know life will, will survive. And what a shame it would be to lose that. Um, and so that just kind of instantly recalibrated my <laughs> priorities and I said, okay, you know, space is going to be there. Uh, it's not going anywhere, well, it is going somewhere fast, but it's not going to end at any point in our foreseeable future. However, we've got crises right now of our own making that we can help change the course of and make sure that we leave something, you know, for the next 
generation of people that are going to come along and do research or maybe go into astronomy. Without that prerequisite, I think it's um, irresponsible to consider, <laughs> uh, not to say they shouldn't be pursued, but I think that it's just, for me personally, it had to be studying what we know least about our, our own planet, and that's the ocean system. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so my next question is, what has been your experience as chair of the NASA Ames LGBT advisory group? Um, and you could just talk broadly about this. Um, what are some things that you've changed? What are improvements that you've made? And like, uh, what areas do you see that you continue are working towards? Sure. So I, I came out as, as bi uh, when I was about 12, 13. And it was coming from a, an Asian family, um, mixed-race family, it was not well-received and it was very difficult to come out. Um, even harder was trying to envision a career in the sciences or STEM field being LGBT. Um, it's not a very, uh, shall I say, forward-thinking field. Science tends to be quite conservative and slow-moving in uptake of not just scientific ideas, but societal ones. So, you know, it was a challenge, and up until recently, you could openly be fired for being LGBT, even if you were in the field. So for me, it was sort of a, um, a requirement for me to work at somewhere at NASA, if I were to be able to get there, to be someone who could help bring about change, just to ensure that, you know, there, there are opportunities for people like me in the future. Um, so many other folks, you know, that the, the NASA Ames LGBT group, when they first uh, met and created their organization in the early 2000s, you know, they had three lawyers from NASA headquarters that were sent to their meeting. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it was, you know, not encouraged is what I'll say. It was very uphill battle. Um, and for many of the folks that formed the Ames LGBT group, you know, who had been there for decades and couldn't marry their partners, it was a, you know, a series of hard-fought, um, small but incremental advances in terms of societal acceptance and um, you know, hopefully at some point societal embrace that I think is we're still kind of getting there. For um, so, you know, I, I got I was appointed the chair when I when I got into Ames, um, partly I think because this group wanted uh, someone new to help lead the group and and you know take it forward. So I helped expand the membership significantly and get a lot more allies involved because you know no minority group can exist unless you have the support of a majority. And that's a, that's a difficult thing to do when people are afraid, you know, themselves to be considered LGBT for fear of repercussions that they might have, even if they attend a meeting. Um, so that was a challenge. And then, I, you know, I asked the question, why haven't we participated in the Pride Parade? Because that seems to me a, a, a logical event for NASA to participate in. We have other um, outreach uh, efforts that align with different advisory groups and underrepresented minorities. So. Of women's influence network african-american advisory group but there wasn't a pride you know participation um in any pride event and this is an event that for free gives nasa exposure to millions of, of people um, in one spot and so i helped put together the first pride parade that nasa participated in in 2014 uh that was not without significant difficulty fortunately we had a very uh, forward-thinking center of leadership and after you know some difficult uh, discussions with legal and, and other um, impediments at headquarters and beyond. 
um, in Congress. Eventually that got approved and we were able to march uh, in the Pride Parade as an official NASA contingent and we had over, I think, 240 people in our group. We were one of the largest groups at that Pride Parade. Um, and it's funny, that was um, shortly after that Pride Parade, we had the DOMA ruling um, and marriage equality, and that made the Pride Parade you know, swell in membership. So in one year that we did Pride, there were 4.2 million people in San Francisco, uh, which, you know, for a NASA outreach event, to get that amount of exposure, you typically have to launch a rocket to Mars. Um, it was a, for me, like, <laughs> this is a no, you know, a no-brainer. It made a lot of sense to do this. There was still, you know, even as of a couple of years ago, people who said, you know, why are we participating in this? And, and this was all in people's volunteer time. It costs nothing. Um, but the first events, you know, we had to like pay for, you know, registration and insurance on our own uh, pocket, out of pocket. And so, it, you know, it's incremental. It's gotten much better now. Now the center is supporting it. All the other um, NASA centers now, because there's precedent, they started doing participation in Pride events. So Houston um, had their center director participate in their Pride event. We had ours multiple times. But it's just, you know, sort of the, the beginning of exposure and getting um, more recruitment. So, in fact, someone applied to my lab from our participation in the Pride event saying, hey, I didn't even know there was a NASA center in Silicon Valley, and, you know, I saw it at Pride, and now I'm, I'm applying, and, and he was a really valuable member of my team for uh, the whole summer internship. And so we, that was kind of a nice success story that came out of, like, ex trying to expose folks in the Bay Area to their own NASA center and then also being able to, to recruit folks from uh, this group. We're still quite underrepresented um, as a minority group at NASA, um, and again, the agency could, can still do better, but there's a lot of, um, I think, positive change and momentum now that's going forward to ensure that not only we're trying to actively hire people, but people that work at NASA are being promoted, and we're considering diversity in those decisions when, when they do happen. Awesome. What, uh, what, in, what practices, and you might have already answered this, but what practices are already in place that are working towards greater engagement among group, different groups of scientists and not in a, and it can be scientists like from different backgrounds like what you had to do working where you talked about your team of different backgrounds but also including scientists that are african-american and lgbtq and other groups to get them engaged in science as well yeah, so there's um, a number of organizations that we have worked with and partnered. Uh, one was uh, out in STEM, OSTEM. This is an organization that typically has chapters at, at most large universities in the United States. And they help sort of expose uh, folks to STEM, or sorry, LGBT folks to STEM fields as a career choice. And then also, you know, they, they, like, they brought me out as a speaker as well as uh, my counterpart at Johnson Space Center who helps uh, with the Human Spaceflight Program. And he's, he's LGBT and um, runs their group. And that was one way in which, you know, we were able to sort of recruit what NASA opportunities, to, um, share what NASA opportunities there are and recruit folks from, from these groups. That was very helpful. And I think it's still, you know, it's very difficult because there's not often resources allocated to, you know, education and outreach um, as much as there used to be in these fields, and so I'm, it's frustrating to kind of work under that constrained environment, but we're trying our best at conferences and then also just visiting schools to get um, that talent pool to consider NASA as an employer, but or also the STEM fields, because a lot of these 
career choices take a significant commitment in terms of education um, and, and yeah, paying for that. So for me, you know, Pathways program was, was I think, a, a great way in which we can recruit and target folks um, and help cover their education, you know, in exchange for them working at NASA. And beyond that, sometimes the advisory groups will partner together at Ames to do outreach events in support of one another. So we'll we'll do like the um, there's a regional science fair competition that targets uh, Hispanic students, and that's one way in which we can you know pull together resources to do outreach. Every year, Ames does the Diversity and Inclusion Day. Um, the NI day in which all the advisory groups have boots and we get the, uh, we also have a science, sort of a, a science poster session going out with the interns and they get exposed to all the different advisory groups. So those are uh, the kind of current active ways of doing things. And then I know at the headquarters level, they're trying to, to do a number of other efforts that take um, the responsibility of diversity and outreach to the headquarters level because sometimes the regional centers will have very different ways of implementing those strategies and addressing issues. I think with, with Ames, um, in general, if you compare us to the Bay Area, you know, our demographics are, are very different. Um, and so it's uh, it's something that I've voiced significantly as, as I think, a, a cause for concern. According to the census data, which is what we use to, to make a reference to how well our hiring practices are going. Um, the SF Bay Area, 22% of the population identifies as LGBT, which actually surprised me when I first learned about that. That's as of the last survey, so this is 2010, when people were less reluctant to even identify, but still, 22% of the population here identifies that way. And at Ames, we have about 1.2% uh, of our population identifying as LGBT. So. If we try to compare ourselves to the local demographics, there seems to be quite a, a mismatch, and that's something that I've tried to help you know, rectify by exposing us. Sometimes it's just people don't know NASA as an employer in their area. Um, other times it's their concern that they may not be as welcomed as they might be at a tech company that you know has much more um, direct engagement with those unrepresented groups. So there's there's different, um, I think, outlets that some have worked very well, some are in, in work in progress but yeah this year has been challenging you know just for the reasons of how do you recruit you know by zoom call it's, it's quite um different uh so we had to postpone pride and a few other events but our advisory groups came up with some different methods to try to reach folks does that answer your question yeah definitely thank you um uh, i'm kind of going to lump these two together since they're kind of very related uh what are some good practices you think moving forward that would lead to better engagement um, among this, among different science science groups, and what can what can what can be done to better engage people going forward in the future as well, to, to engage like women, marginalized communities, to be better allies in general. So not just like what's been done, but like what's go, like what, what you're hoping to be doing or plan to be doing with your group or stuff. And you've you've probably you've talked about it a little bit, but uh, I just thought it would be something really interesting to point out on. As like what 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 is like looking towards the future like for you? Um, I think you know particularly this summer as the nation has had to confront issues of ongoing endemic uh, racism and injustice, and that's really come to the I think a boiling point. Scientists have also realized that this is rampant in our fields as well. And I think the challenge with scientists is often we are, we're sort of trained to ignore all of the 
extraneous details when we're trying to solve a problem, and often that can come at the expense of ignoring long-term societal problems that might be inherent. When I look at my field, and you know, sometimes I'm invited to, to give a plenary talk at a conference, and I'll notice that I'm the only person of color among like 50 people in my field. Um, and having gone from physics to astrophysics and astronomy to aeronautics to ocean science, I am sort of been shocked at how little diversity there is among senior scientists. And I think the challenge, um, and what I'm hoping we, you know, steps we can take now is that people have to realize this is not something you can ignore. It is, it's a little bit like the safety culture we had at NASA. Um, there was a, a big change in how NASA did safety in the last decade, at least at Ames. And a lot of it came from, you know, let's not deal with a problem after it happens and then, you know, suddenly pay attention to safety. It has to be a cultural change. You have to consciously make an effort every day to think about something. And people, I think, with issues like about diversity and races and microaggressions, they may not make that conscious choice. You know, even people like me who might fall into a minority group, it takes effort to, for, you know, for me to think, okay, what is someone else's experience like unless I'm directly listening to them? Um, and so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that scientists, there was a, a walkout day in science a few weeks ago, um, in solidarity with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, a lot of it now is just trying to figure out how do we galvanize action in these communities that are, are very resistant to change, sometimes for good reason, because, you know, the scientific discipline requires a large amount of evidence. But in the term, in case of diversity, the evidence is, you know, not in dispute. It's been established, you know, many decades ago. And the challenge is just really getting folks... Um, not only engaged, but making them accountable and responsible. I think it's it's all too easy for scientists to be successful and not pay attention at all to diversity and equal opportunity. Um, it, it is not in their performance plan. It doesn't affect the amount of funding they get when they write a proposal. Um, there's really nothing that incentivizes them to do that, apart from other people saying, you've got to do it. So I think if there's a societal change, then it needs to come from both the top down and the bottom up, where people are consciously having to think about these issues, engage in dialogues that may be uncomfortable, um, but I think are necessary to understand other people's viewpoints and experiences. I think that's the, the way in which you bring about changes that, that last and actually you know, are not just about one particular protest movement, but they can endure in how we hire and how we train and how we view um, different viewpoints. So I, does that answer your question? Definitely. Thank you. Um, and uh, I only have like, a, like one or two more questions. Could you talk a little bit more about your uh, research with rem uh, remote sensing and the undersea mapping and fluid lensing? Because I know that's what you've been publishing um, and work working on recently. So just very open-ended just... Yeah, uh, so th that started with yeah astronomy and then evolved into the fluid cam instrument and then there was a follow-on instrument uh, which recently got selected for the NASA Invention of the Year Award and that's called MIDAR and that's an active remote sensing system. Sort of looks like a UFO descending upon you because it's active lights, but <laughs> it's a um, 
it's a really cool way to study systems that are in the dark, um, also deep space systems. So if we were to go, for example, to Europa and try to bury under the ice and look at life forms there, we would need it our own you know, light source that can look at the multispectral reflectances of objects. So um, that, those were my, my lab's first two big, I guess, claims to fame and, and developments are just in coming up with ways to look through the ocean surface to image things underneath the ocean surface, uh, both from within it and from above it. And then um, our latest project has been uh, NemoNet, which is a, a large crowdsourced citizen science video game and neural network development. So all the data sets coming out of FluidCam and MIDAR, which we would um, go to different islands around the world and, and map their coral reefs from drones, those data sets that are 3D models of the reef system would be ingested into NemoNet, and then people can play the video game on their iPhones or desktops or laptops and classify coral for us. That data then got sent to NASA. Uh, we run a, a large supercomputer-based um, neural network that then takes all that data and crunches the numbers to compute um, and to create habitat maps to essentially understand what we're looking at underwater. So again, because there's so little mapped underwater, it's, we have these two problems of not only the problem of trying to actually image the thing, but the second problem of, okay, now that we've imaged it, what is this gray blob? You know, is it a coral or is it a rock or is it something covered in, in algae? So that's a very difficult problem and one that um, we've been trying to tackle with NemoNet and just trying to figure out, you know, just to give you an example of like kind of the complexity of this, most of, because most life is in the ocean, on Earth um, and it's evolved in the ocean, there's far more biodiversity in the ocean than there is on land. So if you go to the Amazon rainforest, which is already a very biodiverse place, and you look at just one square meter, you, know, you might find a hundred species uh, living there. In the ocean, you go to one square meter, and in a coral reef, you typically find a hundred times that uh, number of species. So instead of a hundred, you know, you're now looking at 10,000. So that is a challenge for remote sensing to try to assess those systems, but also for the machine learning side and the neural networks to try to understand what you're looking at and to see not only what organisms are there, but how healthy they are, how they're changing over time, what clues they're telling you about how our planet's climate is changing, which um, is happening very quickly in these ocean systems, and what effects they may have uh, upon humans later on. And it sounds like you're almost engaging the like the general population, the and interested community too, by having them be able to like, to play like play a game on their phone and be able to identify the stuff as well. So it seems like it's really becoming a holistic you know approach to doing the science that you have you know supercomputers, there's scientists at NASA and the general public who are all coming together to do this, which is really interesting. Thanks. Yeah, it was it was sort of unintentional. I mean, as we proposed it, we did not have a video game component. But as we got the funding and we realized, okay, we're building this entire tool from the ground up. Why not make this a way in which people can can see these systems? Because I think a lot of the challenge in protecting them and caring about them is just exposing people to them. And if people don't like diving or snorkeling, which is understandable. I mean, it's not easy, and there's sometimes fears and things like that. This is one way in which you can expose them to what that world looks like. And What's funny is a lot of the times people will ask if they're looking at a different planet, and I say, no, that <laughs> it's not you know, data from Mars or from Europa. This is from your own you know, biome. Um, but, so, yeah, that, was, that became a large part of the effort, and we, we tailored um, 
once we realized that potential, we sort of tailored the game to be much more interactive and to have uh, you level up in the food chain and you, know, you can become a whale shark and things like that. And then also videos explaining uh, what you're looking at and what you're doing from different scientists around the world that participate um, on the project. So that's we've been really lucky to, to just kind of have that go viral. And I think right now we're at 50,000 active users who are submitting classifications daily on data sets that are, you know, hundreds if not thousands of terabytes in size. It's almost taken to the cloud project, correct? Where you take a photo of a cloud and send it. Okay. Really? That's really cool. Thank you. I didn't, I didn't even know about um, that they had that for, under, for undersea. Sorry, I'm just keeping track. I write down when, I, when you talk about the question so I can go back and I can listen and I can write it. It makes it so much easier. Um, do you have um, – so the, my final question for you would be like uh, – do you have anything else that we didn't get to talk about that you would like to elucidate on or talk about or you'd like to make a point on that maybe I didn't ask about or that was in the interesting area that, or just something really cool that you're doing? Anything. <laughs> uh, there's all kinds of fun stuff we're doing. Um, we can't do much of it right now because we're all grounded from this pandemic. Um, I, I guess one thing that, that surprised me coming from astronomy into ocean science or just, just as, a, as a human being being surprised about the ocean is there's it's just phenomenal the amount of value we get from it um when i was doing started doing coral work it was largely because i learned that corals are in crisis um they need to be mapped they need to be uh, protected and understood as they change over time but i didn't really you never really think about the far-reaching consequences so one of the ones that came up recently was when this pandemic broke out and people started immediately looking for cures or for vaccines candidates. Um, I did some research and I looked into, okay, what, where do we get the, our antiviral medications from? And it turns out that the majority of them come from coral reefs. In fact, the main antiviral that completely changed the HIV epidemic, AZT, came out of a marine sponge that was found in a coral reef. And so for me, that was, it just drove home the importance of protecting these systems because so much comes from them. They have very advanced biological compounds that they've evolved for a lot longer than humans have and because they don't move anywhere. So they have the only mechanism to fight is, is chemical and biological warfare. That's exactly the kind of compounds that we, you know, might lead to a cure for something like COVID-19 or the next um, large viral epidemic that happens. And if we don't have that system protected, we're not going to be able to find that compound or harvest it. And so to me, the, it could not be more clear, you know, how crucial it is to protect something like a coral reef because it has these ripple-down impacts. And I found, you know, as I get older and do more research, this is true of nearly every living thing on Earth. It has some connection in a much more complicated system. And oftentimes, you know, you won't know that unless you study it, protect it, and communicate that to others. So I guess that would be my, my main message is as we go forward, I hope as a species we spend a lot more time thinking about how interdependent we are upon the systems that sustain us.